0: Welcome to Mill Creek Church in Belleville, Texas, where our worship service is in progress. Today, Pastor Monty Bird continues with his sermon series on the book of Romans. And now, Pastor Bird.
1: Join me in prayer, please. Father, as we continue our study of Romans chapter 8, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace it and that we would rely on it and trust it for daily living. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we finished Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And as I preached through those verses, I made the comment that 28 through 30 is perhaps one of the most recognized group of verses in the New Testament. And as I preached through those familiar verses, I described those verses as the story of our salvation, especially verse 30. Doug Moo described it as the heavenly chain. And in both analogies, it points to the fact that God is at work in our lives, that salvation isn't a stale ticket that one keeps in one's pocket until they face God, but rather salvation is a story as God works through us in our life and accomplishes his purpose. And it reminded me of a verse in Philippians, it's in Philippians chapter one, it's actually verses three through six, where Paul told the church, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And there, when you look at those verses, you see the fact that God is at work, that Jesus Christ is going to finish his work. And that work is changing us and molding us until we see him face to face. Well, if Christ is at work, if he's going to complete the good work, which he began in each and every one of us, what is the environment that he's working in? All workplaces have an environment, don't they? And so what's the environment that God is at work in? And we know that it is a sinful environment. God works in a sinful environment. And if you step back a little bit in Romans 8, I want to point out a couple of verses, several verses actually, that point to the fact that God is at work in a sinful environment. So when you look at verse 22, for instance, in Romans 8, It reads, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And later in 23, it says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why is there evidence that God is at work in a sinful environment? Because as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and also, as the created world, knowing the Creator, we groan because we know that this isn't how it is supposed to be. We live in an environment of sin. We live in an environment where our body is constrained by the effects of sin if you look at verse 26 it says likewise the spirit also helps in our weaknesses that's why verse 28 reads and we know that all things work together and let me stress there the word or the phrase all things it's just not good things all things So as we live in a sinful environment, as God operates in a sinful environment, we know that he is using all things. He is working in an environment of sin as he calls his redeemed and his saints unto himself. That just doesn't stop at a first encounter. And as I've mentioned before, there are people who have the wrong view of salvation. They look at their salvation as two bookends. One, when they first make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's this vast expanse of nothingness. They're driving their own will and desires and their own life. And there's no God involved. And then you have that next bookend when they appear before God in heaven. But that's not correct. See, God is at work. He's at work. And he's working in this sinful environment. And as, as Paul said in Philippians, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is at work. And he's at work in all things. James says the same thing. James 1 Verse two, he writes, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So when you think about this idea that God is at work and God uses all things, and as I've said before, there is a purpose in our salvation. It lays out the story of salvation for each and every one of us as believers, that we don't believe in two bookends with this vast expanse of nothingness. We believe in a God who is active and he's at work And he's at work in every step of our life as he moves us from justification to sanctification to then glorification. That he's at work in our life and he's using all of the events that we encounter in life. All of the trials, all of the tribulations. God is using those for a purpose. We're just not drifting in this world without a purpose. God's at work in our life. So if Romans 8, 28 through 30 is the story of our salvation, I would submit to you that we're about to begin a new section starting in verse 31, that that section of scripture is the assurances of our salvation. The assurances of our salvation. And it's only appropriate if you think about This idea that Paul moves from the story of our salvation as he lays out the process and the purposes of God and in his redeemed, to then look at the saints not only to in Rome, who he's addressing at this original writing, but also to us as believers as we read his letter to the Roman Church. Because We do have to remind ourselves that God is in control as we go through trials and tribulations in life and that we do need assurances. Have you ever found yourself walking in the midst of a trial or tribulation and need the assurance of scripture that God's in control? So we begin a new section of scripture this morning. And it starts off with a question, which is followed by five questions. And the five questions that Paul is going to ask his readers are questions that give us assurance as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he first starts out in Romans eight thirty one 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? And what he's referring to is, is what shall you say to these questions that I am about to pose you? That's the setup here. And the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? We ask that question. I want to put it in context because... I have seen this verse taken completely out of context. Like you have this carte blanche protection and you can do what you want to and your life is your own and your will is your own and your desire is your own. But that is not what Paul is talking about. As we put this in context and we go back to Romans eight twenty eight. 28, What we see is, is Paul outlines the story of salvation as we are moving from predestination to justification, to sanctification, to glorification. That's the story of salvation, and that is the direction that Paul is trying to communicate to us. This is the story of God in your life, that he's always in your life. And if I, as a believer, and you as a believer, come to recognize that God has a purpose in our life, then I can appropriately put this question that he's posing in context. If God is for us, who can be against us? I agree with John Stott in his commentary that Paul didn't ask this generic question Who is against us? Because if he asked that question, not only the Romans, but us as well, we can come up with a litany of people who are against us, right? I mean, if you stand for Christ, you are going to have people that are against you. That's not what he's asking. He's not asking a generic question that stands on its own. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, if you look back at the original Greek, it reads since, not if, it reads since. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want to make the point that this is not a generic verse. It's not a universal verse. In other words, if a stranger comes off the street and doesn't know a thing about God, has no relationship with God, and they open up the Bible to this verse, and they read this verse, they can't lay claim to that verse in their life. I want to point out scripture to back that up because God isn't for everyone. Jeremiah 50, 31, we see where God is against the Babylonian. He writes, behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you. Not only did he tell the Babylonians that he was against them, he told the Ninevites that he was against them. Get at chapter 2, verse 13. It reads, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers. The Babylonians, the Ninevites, and then in Ezekiel 29 verse 3, we see where God is against the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Starting in verse 3, it reads, Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own, I have made it for myself. The Babylonians, the Ninevites, the Pharaoh, one could say, well, that's, that's regarding national politics in the Israelis or the Hebrews. But that's not the commonality here that you see in with the Babylonians and the Ninevites and the Pharaoh. But there is a commonality among those three, but there's also a commonality that we can see within each and every person individually. Who is God against? And you see the answer in Psalm 34, 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Real plainly, God is against evil and he is against people who do evil. And so let's go back to our question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, since God is against evil, who is he for? And you'll see, as Paul wrote the church at Rome, and as that letter was directed to Christians, in that letter, he is telling fellow Christians, if God is for us, in other words, if God is for believers, who can be against us? It's believers that can claim this verse. It's a specific group of people. Turn with me, if you will, to First Peter 3:12. First Peter 3:12, it says, "For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." So there in First Peter three, verse 12, you see both of my points together that God is for the righteous and he is against those who do evil. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Well, if you remember, Paul wrote, there's none righteous, no, not one. So something happens. Because how do we get from being in the state to where God is against us to the state where God is for us? After all, the Bible says that the natural man is at enmity with God. How do we get there? Do we get there by merit? Do we get there by intellect? Do we get there by logic? Do we get there by good works? No, we only get there through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the first chapter of John, starting in verse 12. John 1, starting in verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love that verse. I absolutely love that verse. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of people that say that they can find stature in worth, in merit, in front of God because of what they are doing but that's not scriptural. Because even our salvation, if you look at John 1:13, it says that we weren't born of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man. We were born by God. In other words, back to Romans 8:28 through 30, Specifically, verse 30, as we think about predestination, that we've been predestined, that God put our name in the Lamb's book of life before the beginning of time, and not because we were born in a certain race, not because we had the will of the flesh, not because of logic or desire to live a moral life. We came to salvation only because of God as He redeemed His people unto Himself, we went from the against column to the for column only because of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's Christ. It's Christ alone. Later on, John would write in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Think about that. What John is doing is is describing the incredible mercy and love and care that God has for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Think about those verses I just read in 1 John 3. Compared to 28 through 30, it reveals that God is at work in our life. Now, as a believer, we need to be aware of that, don't we? We need to be aware that God is at work. We need to be looking at our life in that context. What is God doing in my life? What are the trials and the tribulations that I am facing in my life? What does God want to accomplish in my life? Because already, as I read in James, it says, let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete. God's at work. Every single day, God is at work. And so you've got to have that concept down, that that doctrine down, that God is at work for you to truly appreciate what Paul is laying out here in the next verse when he poses that question. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And let me put another verse On the list here this morning, which is the 33rd Psalm, verse 10. It reads, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Plan of his heart to all generations. Think about that for a moment. As I have painted the picture of Ephesians 1 in preaching through these sermons where we're surrounding the throne of God. And as we're surrounding the throne of God, he has everyone there around his throne, all believers from all ages, all collected together And as you think about that mental image, not only is it going to be a glorious day, a truly glorious day, but when you think about this phrase in the 33rd Psalm, verse 11, the plans of his heart to all generations, he won't be thwarted. He will not be thwarted. As I was preaching through this it reminded me of Job. And if you remember reading through the opening of Job, Satan petitions God to test Job. He had to get his permission. And in getting his permission, God put a restraint on Satan. He said, you can do all of those things, except not take his life. God's at work. God's at work. Regardless of where we find ourselves, we have to recognize the fact that God is at work and he is for us. He's for us. Now that doesn't mean that I can go out and say, well, God's for me, so I can act and live recklessly. I can spin beyond limit. I can do all of these crazy things because after all, God's for us. That's not what that verse means. God's for us in the fact that he will accomplish his plan in our life and he uses whatever environment that we find ourselves in. He uses all of these things. And so when I find myself in a trial or tribulation, I find myself in a particular situation, I have to recognize that there is a sovereign God and he's doing these things for his purpose and for me and for you. If God is for us, Who can be against us? And when you look at all of the evilness out in the world, and we were talking about this on Wednesday night because there's been very prominent trials here in the last two weeks of some very evil people. And I made this comment on Wednesday night. It's hard for me to get my mind wrapped around that type of evil. I mean, when you think about the trials that have been in the public view, like the Maxwell trial. Here's a woman that was convicted of sex trafficking, will spend more than likely the rest of her life in jail. But you look at her and you think, if you were down at your local gas station and if you were pumping gas, and this woman came up to ask you a question, would you be on guard? She looks like your neighbor. You wouldn't be on guard. Perhaps she's coming to ask directions. She doesn't look like the stereotypical person of evil. And we have example in white collar crime. Example after example of people that don't look evil, but they are evil. That's the environment that we live in. And to be that evil, as I made a comment on Wednesday night, you've got to plan that type of evil. That just isn't something that you just dream up for two seconds and you find that person finds himself in doing evil things. That is contemplated. And what Paul is saying here to the church at Rome is, he goes, despite of all of that, despite the fact that we live in an evil environment, Despite the fact that there are people that plot and scheme all day long to do evil things, when you pose that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? The righteousness and power of God makes them look absolutely insignificant. They're insignificant. God's in control. God's plan stands forever. And he will accomplish his purpose, which is redeeming his people unto himself. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we can rest in your word, that we can rest in your care. That we know that whatever situation that we find ourselves in, that you're sovereign, you're in complete control, that you will protect us. And I pray, Lord, that we might live our life daily recognizing that you are at work in each and every one of our lives. And that you're accomplishing your purpose and your plans will not be thwarted. We give you the glory for that today, Lord. We just thank you for the power of your salvation for us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for joining us as Pastor Bird continues this sermon series. If you wish to hear more, you may find him at millcreekchurch.org or go to sermonaudio.com slash Church. Prayer requests may also be left at millcreekchurch.org. Our church services are as follows. Sunday morning Bible study is at 9 a.m., followed by our worship service at 10 a.m. We have Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study, and they are at 6.30 p.m. For more information and our mission statement, please visit our website, millcreekchurch.org.